I'm Don Tess, better known as the Don of Beer. And I'm M. Sauter, better known as Pints and Panels. Welcome to the 25th episode of the All About Beer podcast. Every two weeks, we talk with leading experts and take a deep dive into one topic in beer. Visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And if you're feeling generous, visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about fruit in beer. We are talking to two brewers who have built their breweries around fruit. M, what is your favorite fruit in beer? I love Don, I love raspberries. Um, I love the way that they add tartness. Yeah. I I you know, I go traditional when I, I like there's certain uh I went to Brazil last year to judge the Brazil beer cup and having cashew and some other, you know, Brazil heavy. Uh, fruit there was a fruit that tasted like well, I don't know, it was just crazy um <laughs> but usually when we're talking not being in brazil drinking catarina sours on the beach we're talking i love raspberries and i love uh cherries especially the way yeah. that they add the almond when because of the when they're in the, the, pit. the nut yeah the yeah. benzaldehyde that's the flavor uh ah, ben- yes. benzaldehyde yes it's delicious yeah. what about what about you don uh, so I'm the opposite of you. I like exotic <laughs> fruits. Um, I just said I like cashew. Come on. <laughs> that's true. Um, but that's, so that's exactly the type of thing I get jazzed on. I, I'm, uh, you know me, I'm just such a nerd. So if I see a beer with um, something cool, um, then, then that's what I like. So, you know, dragon fruit beers or hascaps, that's, that's the kind What's of What's a thing. hascap? A hascap is a sort of blueberry-ish. Huh. Yeah. When I lived in Oregon, uh, they had Marionberry, which is yeah, like, okay. yeah, Marionberry cool. is, a, it's like a raspberry and a blueberry had a baby. That's really, really good. Those are excellent. Yeah. See, that's, I'm all over that. I like that mm. type of thing. <laughs> and, you know, like in the, I don't, you know, in the early days of craft beer, fruit just meant they added some syrup to typically a wheat beer and, you know, really wasn't that exciting. But in modern uh, fruited beers, I think there's, um, uh, craft brewers are doing really sophisticated, interesting things. So I'm super excited to learn how fruit is used in making flavorful and interesting beers. And uh, we have two great guests. Two really good guests. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to help support the All About Beer podcast, please reach out at podcast at allaboutbeer.com. Estrella Galicia is an independent family-owned brewery in Northwest Spain, founded in 1906. Estrella Galicia Cerveza Especial is a world-class lager, brewed using the finest Spanish malts, locally cultivated Galician hops, and the best brewing practices made out of the state-of-the-art facility in Acruña. Recognized around the world for quality and exceptional character, Estrella Galicia is a beer like no other. To learn more about Estrella Galicia, follow them at Estrella Galicia USA on Instagram. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Brett Coleman-Baker is a founder and the COO of Urban Artifact in Cincinnati, Ohio. Urban Artifact is the country's largest fruit beer-only brewery, using over 1 million pounds of fruit per year. With degrees in chemical engineering and brewing science, Brett has been able to help build out a brewery dedicated to handling massive amounts of fruit, fruit puree. In addition, Brett is the beer ambassador for Le Verger 
Biaron, helping them reach more professional brewers with their fruit purees. In his free time, writing, hiking, and working on the Brew Skies podcast are his pursuits of passion. Welcome to the show, Brett. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you. Uh, we are excited to talk to you. So yes, the feeling is mutual. <laughs> um, so tell us a little about Urban Artifact and how you use fruit in beer. Well, we are a fruit only brewery. Uh, everything we do is made with fruit. Uh, well, 99% of it. And everything is also tart. We have a house lactobacillus that we use. And the reason for that being that I find that since fruit is naturally acidic, uh, having a little bit of a tart base that we can play with and adjust the acidity levels really helps fruit beer taste more like fruit, which is the goal. So Urban Artifact, uh, I think we are the country's largest only tart and fruit brewery, which I mean, with all those clarifiers, it's easy to say something silly like that. <laughs> but we use like a million pounds of fruit a year. So I, I mean, Holy. I, 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 we, yeah, that's that's what we do. We're fruit. Um, and I, I guess that sums it up. Uh, well, um, when you use when you say you use a million pounds of fruit, uh, I assume that means you only use real fruit or do you use purees from time to time? And if you are using real fruit, is there a reason? We, uh, we do use some whole fruit. Um, we'll buy occasionally from some local suppliers when we can. Uh, being in Ohio, we don't actually have a lot of uh, local fruit options at the quantities that we buy from. So we, we work directly instead with farmers and we buy uh, whole fruit puree. So oh, okay. the only thing that's removed is the seed. Um, unless we specifically ask to keep the seeds, like some fruits, it, it actually makes a difference. Like red raspberries, we find that that little bit of tannic impact and flavor you pull out of the seeds actually adds some depth where something like, um, uh, bananas or strawberries, for instance, strawberries is a good example. Strawberry seeds are actually detrimental to the flavor. So it depends, but the key is skins. And all the juice and all the fiber and all the pulp, all of that's there. The seeds kind of just get in the way most of the time. Um, how did you learn that you want the seed in a raspberry, but not in a strawberry, for example? Or experimentation? Or is this known in the industry? Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, there is some, like, there's some traditional knowledge around spontaneous fruit beers coming from Belgium and other traditional practices around using whole fruit and giving the yeast and bacteria time to kind of dissolve away peach pits or cherry pits and pull out almond like flavors and things like that. And you can pull from the, the cooking world a little bit, but things like strawberry seeds being bad and causing a, a, a phenolic off flavor. That was just, we learned through trial and error. And same with raspberry is that we learned through trial and error. Like <laughs> we actually got shipped raspberry that had seeds in it by accident and um, we didn't really have much of a choice so we said let's use it and we actually really liked the um the flavor differences that we were pulling off of the final product and mm. while our customers haven't really noticed outright that we made any in a change like that uh, all the brewers have definitely noticed a positive uptick in regards to the the tannin structure and and balance that it brings to the beer and the strawberries was just years of bashing our head against the wall of why does our strawberry beer keep tasting phenolic? Are we, do we keep messing this up? Are we getting an infection? Are we messing up fermentation? And after, uh, you know, figuring it out on our own that removing the seeds and then cooking the strawberry helped 
I found that by um, making some connections within the Smuckers organization, actually, that there is a precursor oh. compound in strawberry seeds that lead to phenolic off flavors when exposed to the biotransformation properties of yeast. Oh, my God. You just, Don, my head exploded. Don, yeah. <laughs> Don's, Don's a real nerd, like I say in every episode. So this, you, just, awesome. you, you made his day, his year, I yeah. bet, actually. Interview's over. M, I <laughs> hand it over to you. I'm done. Um, I did want to ask that. So, no, I, M, I need you to ask a question because I need to think about this a little bit. So I, I guess one of the things is what considerations uh, do you manage when you're using purees and whole fruit because there's you know fruit is uh you know has sugar in it so it ferments so mm. what are you doing with that fruit when you're using it are you putting it in in the like primary you know secondary you're fermenting it out do you have a pasteurizer what's the what's the how do you deal with that yeah that good question we um everything gets added to fermentation we usually add it about three to five days post yeast pitch We'll add more nutrient uh, at that time as well. And then we'll make sure to stir the tank for uh, the next three days to really get as much extraction from the skins as possible for color and tannins, but also make sure all the sugars are getting fermented. Um, that needs to be accounted for, obviously, because, you know, a lot of a lot of people might think uh, I've run into brewers that think you're adding fruit. So you're adding sugar and it's additive. Well, it's actually not additive. There's more water than there is sugar in fruit. So normally, unless you're making a really, really low ABV beer, you know, your specific gravity of fruits around 10 Plato or so, depending on the fruit. Hmm. So you're actually diluting by adding fruit. Oh. So that that needs to be accounted for. Um, and the French have a fancy term for it. They call it chapitalization. But really, all you're doing is just adding sugar to, to up the to up the strength. You're just we add dextrose because it ferments out dry uh, and doesn't add much flavor impact. And then that way we, we can hit the same gravity that we were going for with the wort base without necessarily diluting it with the fruit. And then the other big impact for us is because um, we're using so much fruit between 20 to 40% fruit um, in any given product is how do you minimize loss? Because there's a huge amount of loss when you're using all that pulp and trube and, and stuff. So uh, we installed a centrifuge about four years ago, three years ago. Uh, and that has just increased our yields exponentially. We it paid for itself, you know, $175,000 machine. We saw a return on investment within six months. Hmm. Um, so that, that's been a big help. What does your grist look like too? What are you starting with from a malt perspective with, do you have a, you know, one style of beer you make and then you add different fruits kind of like you know how like lambic brewers do it or does each fruit beer have a different grist ratio uh, or base that you're starting with so when we first started i had these very grand ideas of we're going to match all the different malts to the different fruits and all these nuances and complexities are going to help bring out these different flavors and like oh we're doing strawberry well, we want to make it taste like strawberry jam so we're going to use 100 percent vienna malt base and try to bring out this toast characteristic and it's going to be like having jam on toast and this fruit's a little more a little more subtle so we're just going to use two row and what we found over the last eight years is that um the most important thing for us with our fruit usage and the type of fruit we're using is that year to year crop variations have way more of an impact on the final flavor than malt ever does 
So <laughs> we, we've simplified it way down and we only use, um, we only use two row, a little bit of Carafoam for, uh, some foam stability and a touch of raw barley for the same reason as well. So that's, that's it. almost every beer is the same kind of grist ratio and we'll use more malt if we want higher ABV or less in order to keep that final gravity uh, where we want it. You're breaking my heart now. We, we were friends before, but uh, I'm a big <laughs> I'm malt sorry. fan. Oh, oh Don, calm down. <laughs> um, can you tell me a little bit about your house lacto? Is it a, is it a blend of lactose or, or is it a unique strain? So we, when we first started, we were doing, um, our, our whole niche was all things kind of wild and funky. So we did Brett beers, hundred percent Brett beers. We did Brett co-pitch beers. We did lacto beers. We did not sour beers. We did spontaneous beers. We did a whole bunch of stuff and it's simplified over time. But one thing that's remained is that early on when we were out catching, uh, local microflora samples we got we caught one uh, we are taproom's in a church and up in the bell tower of the church we caught a sample that the acidity was like clean and peach like and we really liked it it was sharp it was strong it was really great so we sent that off to omega labs they isolated that lactobacillus uh for us said that it didn't match anything in their database and now all of our beers gets this house lacto that we captured from our property uh, and that sours everything. Oh, wow. Unique that's, to Urban that's Artifact. So cool. I think that's awesome. Yeah. That's totally cool. I love stuff like that. Gay, we're friends again. <laughs> <laughs> good. Right. Good, good job. Good job. Yeah. Um, I wanted to know, you know, given the amount of fruit that you use, is, is malolactic fermentation is uh, a consideration? You know, we've not had an issue with that, and I'm not entirely sure if it's a combination of just the fact that we have the wort on the uh, mixing in with it that kind of helps buffer a little bit, or if it's the specific yeasts that we're using, or if it's just the fact that, you know, it's not 100% fruit, it's up to 40% fruit that we just don't run into that issue, but but we've we've never really run into that as a problem. Okay. Yeah. So you don't even really think about it. Mm -mm. No. no. Okay, cool. Are you using yeah. like local, like is the fruit coming from, you may have already talked about, touched on this before, but like it's, it's strawberry season right now. So are you focused on brewing with local strawberries or is that not something that you guys think about? Is it not a seasonality thing? We, we try to keep some seasonality going. Um, we have a couple programs where we're able to use, local stuff more uh and, and, and easier we have a our our small pilot program that we do three to five beers a month on that we'll use whole fruit and we'll use local and, and be able to do more stuff like that and then once a week we do um what we call fresh fruit tarts but basically we buy fresh fruit we make puree ourselves and then we make you know the the, the smoothie style beer that we release once a week uh for the taproom only and have it come in and out so we're able to pull in more of that um on the small scale but on the larger scale, it's more about finding the best growing regions for the quantities that we're buying at. I mean, we're buying, you know, 150,000 pounds of raspberries a year uh, and Ohio just doesn't have the infrastructure to support that type of growth. Uh, and then also turn it into a, a frozen puree that ideally isn't even pasteurized. Um, so we're just getting pureed, you know, fruit slop shipped to us direct where a lot of brewers are buying puree that's been made somewhere 
usually turned into an aseptic via hot fill 42 pound bag in a box and then stuck in a warehouse for a long time where everything we're buying ideally is from a farm that we like for instance raspberries i've found that our favorite location is pacific northwest um california has okay ones mexican raspberries i've been pretty disappointed with scottish i've been pretty disappointed with serbian's actually been really good but by having these farm contacts i can get this fruit made pureed uh, and then frozen immediately right next to the farm where they don't need to pasteurize it it doesn't ever see heat it just literally gets pureed and frozen. Um, so uh, the the focus for us is finding the right places for the, the fruit and farmers that we can work with that we know it's going to get handled and processed immediately uh, to maintain as fresh of flavor as possible. Um, peaches, turkey, for instance, uh, weirdly enough, are some of my, our favorite peaches. Um, white peaches, Spain uh blackberries also the pacific northwest cherries usually michigan blueberries canada sometimes maine um it really just depends but it's it's been a lot of fun finding what regions grow what fruits better than the other for our needs do, do you get to travel around searching for these fruits or do people send you send them to you unfortunately we don't have the budget yet uh. to uh to, to do all no, that traveling. No fruit hunter. <laughs> <laughs> no fruit hunter. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the, the fruit purees are frozen. Does that kill all the microbes in the fruit? Ah, yeah, great question. N no, um, no, not really. So what we actually did is we invested in what we called the fruit cooker. And it's a giant steam jacketed kettle that's uh, 60 barrels. We have a 30 barrel brew house, but this, this tank's 60 barrels. It's got three massive stainless steel impellers on the inside of it. And what we do is we thaw out this fruit slowly over about a week or two in our fridge. Oh, wow. And then we pump it into the fruit cooker and we gently heat it up while we're stirring it continuously to about 145 Fahrenheit, depending on the fruit, and then pump it into our tank through our heat exchanger into the tank. And then that way, uh, we don't. We know exactly what temperature we're bringing it to, so we can protect the flavor as much as possible, rather than relying on um, somebody else to do that for us. Okay, cool. Um, Citrus doesn't need that treatment, for instance. It's so acidic, and and the flavor is so delicate. Um, blueberry actually benefits from a longer, hotter cook. You get more color extraction, and you actually get a little bit more of that, like blueberry compote flavor. I mean, you guys have had blueberries before, right? They don't taste like much. They're they're tart and sweet. So when you ferment them and you remove the sweet, there's really not much flavor left. But if you give them a good cook, you can really stick some of that flavor, that blueberry flavor around that people um, expect. So I heard a trick that uh, to get blueberry flavor, you should actually use blackberries. <laughs> yeah, so I heard the same thing about peach with apricot. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I'm fascinated to to hear how you learned all this stuff, like this trick about blueberries and sort of like the, the whole strawberry seed. It like, this is just years of experimentation or how do you know to do this? Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's a combination of years of experimentation and, and cooking. So our, our first head brewer, Josh Elliott, uh, it was just him and I for, for the first, I don't know, three years or so in the brewery. And we had a lot of time to just kind of mull these questions over to ourselves and think about cooking and think about fruit and flavor and how to bring these things out. And, and a lot of it's just 
yeah, trial and error and, and trying to pull in techniques from the, the culinary world um, and scale them up. Hmm. Em, do you have any questions? I want to know what your favorite fruit is because you have one. Oh, I know you man. do. Everyone has a favorite <laughs> fruit. Mine's raspberry, just so you know. <laughs> oh, raspberry is a good choice. Uh, with or without <laughs> seeds, Em? With, oh, 100% with seeds. Okay, sorry. Because when we're talking like jam, you want raspberries. Oh, yeah. the, you got to have the seeds. Unseeded <laughs> raspberry jam is an abomination. It um, really is. And then raspberry in, in beer is just delightful. I really love, yeah, I love that flavor. I didn't know that. I, you, I feel like you have to have a favorite. Or because you brew with fruit all the time, is that being like, who's your favorite child? You know, is it like that kind of situation? Uh, my absolute favorite is probably black raspberry. The color, mm -hmm. the flavor intensity, the importance locally here in Cincinnati. It's just, it's just such a wonderful fruit. It's just so damn expensive. Um, pawpaw is probably number two for similar reasons. Pawpaws are a huge pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and I let your yeah. laughter, your laughter, uh, infor yeah, that reinforces my, my statement. They are, if for people who don't know, it's like thin skin and then the inside is slippery and weird and smells like pancakes. And then they have <laughs> big flat seeds and they are uh, delicious and tropical and wonderful. But man, are so when you get your pawpaws, do you get them with the seeds out and pureed and all that stuff? Or are you cutting them up? Because they are, they are tricky bastards. Yeah. Yeah. We, there's a, there's a local, uh, semi-local, uh, farm here in Ohio called integration acres that sells pawpaw puree, but it often goes quick, uh, shortly after harvest season. So you gotta be, you gotta be on it. If you want any of his, uh, his puree that's de-skinned and de-seeded. Um, so we, we use some of that. And then we also, if we're buying whole pawpaw from a local foraging network that we have or, or our own foraged, what we found is that, um, you know, it's just not worth the effort uh, to try to take all that other stuff off. So we usually just smush them uh, with our hands and then toss in all the seeds and skins together. Oh, how does that change the flavor versus just using the, the, the for lack of a better word, the mush? The, uh, <laughs> uh, I like that. The, uh, um, the skins have a little bit of, bitterness to them and an astringency that you need to account for in your recipe. So whether that's just dialing back the acidity a little bit, or even just cutting your hops to, to near, uh, non-use, um, that's, that's how we account for that. Hmm. You mentioned Brett that, um, with your beers, you really want to showcase the flavor of the fruit. Is there a fruit that you've been unsuccessful? Like you've tried 50 times and you just cannot get a beer that tastes like this fruit that is a great question because we do have that it's coconut i can't get coconut to work I, the coconut toasted coconut puree is great but you have to use so much of it that it's cost prohibitive for us to do anything with it and the coconut purees are just so laden with fat that yeah. it's just a you just you, you can't and since we have a pretty strong, um, more uh, guiding value of just using fruit 
um, no extracts or flavorings or anything like that, that it just, I can't, I can't get coconut. I can't, I can't make it work. So if, if, if you know how, or if anybody knows how I, <laughs> I would love to, I'd love to know the secret to coconut, but that's our white whale. I yeah, know how I'm, you just use flavoring. No. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's never, I, cause I've, I don't think I've ever had like a coconut sour before I've, I've had like smoothie sours where it's like kind of a contributing flavor but it's mostly in i've had imperial stouts with coconut in it where they are it's like it's they're greasy Mm -hmm. yes they are (laughs) slick yeah slick slick. and you're like i love coconut in beers i think it's it's actually one of my favorite flavors especially with darker beers but man that slickness is yeah i can imagine with like oh yeah that's gotta be i want i want to i'm gonna think i want to help you in this regard (laughs) i don't know how but I will. Um, please, please. What is the most? <laughs> what is the most exotic fruit that you've brewed with? Oh, you know we've used uh, lychee or, or lychee before, which oh, okay. you know is mm. fairly exotic. We've used uh, mangosteen, which was illegal in oh, the yeah. U.S. until whatever 2012. Um, we've used mellow mo- yellow mambin, aka hog plum, which comes from Brazil. Uh, that's probably my favorite and most unheard of fruit that we've we brewed at scale before is is the yellow mambin. It's this okay. yellow little plum looking thing that grows on hundred foot tall trees in the Brazilian uh, the northeast corner of the Brazilian rainforest, and um, it's just the most like tropical candy like flavor that works and carries through fermentation. It's just it is a a delight and something that uh is really unique right you need to go to brazil because their sour beers are really good and their fruits all the fruits that you get to have are like cashew the like cashew catherine sours are really really good i i judged in the brazil beer cup i judged the medal round for catarina sours that were brazil bait like mm-hmm. um br- using brazil fruits and because they wanted non uh brazilians to judge it um and so it was myself a guy from uruguay um someone from panama and then a german judge and yeah the we got to try the fruits before we had the beers so we and uh-huh. it was really fascinating there was fruits that it was like, it looked like a kiwi, but tasted like a lime. Oh, cool. And I was like, I don't remember what it was, but it was, I feel like a, you should, and the team should go yeah, down yeah. to Brazil. And they don't have the budget for it. And he just no, but, I mean, you could, but you could go on vacation or something or go down and judge a competition or maybe do a collaboration where it would be, you know, once you get to Brazil, the, the exchange rate is quite favorable for Americans. And it's a wonderful yeah. country. So I feel like for all I could think of when you were talking about fruits was the fruit beers I had mm-hmm. in Brazil and how that's a feels like you would be very comfortable down there. Uh, I have a challenge for you, Brett, as well, sort of building on what M said. I mm-hmm. would like you to make a delicious emphasize. I want to emphasize that it has to be delicious <laughs> durian beer. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> See? <laughs> okay. Um, we- Go ahead. We had an intern um, in 2017 who is now married to um, a woman from China. And he, uh, for his capstone project, had us make a durian beer. Oh, and you... it, uh, it was it was uh, awful. 
Yeah, it was foul. <laughs> um, my last question, uh, and then I'll turn it to M if she has any more questions. But my last question, you briefly mentioned hops. How do hops uh, factor into your your recipe design? That's the best part. They don't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, the money you spend on would have spent on hops goes to fruit. Exactly. Uh, but like you, you don't use aged hops or anything like that. No, we uh I buy actually um isomerized extract because oh, okay. I don't even want to put in I don't even want to put anything in the boil kettle because it's just gonna hurt yields. And we we um take it to about eight to ten IBUs right before centrifuging and and that's it. Um hmm. I, I find that hop flavor generally like it's just it just gets in the way. And the bitterness that hops have is different than the tannic bitterness that fruit has. And I find that it's far more better to balance the sweet and the sour with tannin-based bitterness than it is with hop-based bitterness. Mm. Um, and so you're really just doing IVUs for microbial yep. control? Yeah, okay, awesome. Thank you. My Damn, last, that was yeah. my last question. Go my ahead. last question is, do you know how many total like different fruits you've used in the entire like time that the brewery's been around oh, off the top of your a... head, I guess. Um, I'm trying, I keep, I keep a spreadsheet that's a little out to date of the total amount of fruit pounds we've used in our lifetime. And I want to say that it's about a uh, right around 50 to 60 columns deep on to uh, different fruits we've used. Oh my oh, goodness. Wow. That's so cool. I don't, I don't know any other brewery that does stuff like this. Do you, Don? No, yeah. No, this is this is pretty cool. It's yeah. Um, Brett, uh, can you share your social media handles so that people can uh, find out everything uh, that you're doing and when your next release of the durian beer will be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I deleted so my personal social media um, uh, about six months ago, but you can find Urban Artifact on basically anything. You know, Instagram, Facebook threads twitter linkedin tiktok i think even so just search urban artifact and you can find what we're doing when we're doing it and where to get us awesome awesome thank you brett yeah thank you so much for coming on and talking all things fruit this has been very fascinating you, and you it's really yeah once you, if you if you blow don's mind then <laughs> it's successful so kudos to you so thank you so much for your time this has been awesome well, thank you both. It was a, it was a pleasure chatting with you guys. And um, let me know if there's anything I can ever do for you in the future. Of course. Cheers. Of course. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Estrella Galicia is an independent family-owned brewery in Northwest Spain, founded in 1906. Estrella Galicia Cerveza Especial is a world-class lager, brewed using the finest Spanish malts, locally cultivated Galician hops, and the best brewing practices made out of the state-of-the-art facility in Acruña. Recognized around the world for quality and exceptional character, Estrella Galicia is a beer like no other. To learn more about Estrella Galicia, follow them at Estrella Galicia USA on Instagram. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. 
Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. Five years ago, Stephen Smith Hay started Vault City Brewing after experimenting with heavily fruited mixed fermentation sour beers and spotting a niche with huge potential in an otherwise crowded market. As a keen home brewer, Stephen saw the accessibility of Vault City's signature style as an opportunity to reach avid craft beer fans and non-beer drinkers alike. He has since seen the company grow from just two full-time employees to nearly 30 across Vault City's brewery and its two bars. Stephen's past life as an IT consultant seems a world away in 2023, which makes for a good story about boring day jobs and exciting hobby-turned-career opportunities that may have otherwise remained a daydream. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you very much, Don. It's uh, great of you to have me. Shame I couldn't make it across to Canada, but... Oh, or us to Scotland. <laughs> I know. Well, I would but... I would always go back to Scotland. Yeah, After, I love it, it would, That is a wonderful place. You're lucky to leave, well, live there, Steve. Yes, you are. <laughs> well, you're welcome anytime, and we can spend longer than an hour in the bar next time. <laughs> yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about Vault City and what you mean by modern sour beer. Sure. So uh, Vault City started a little bit by accident. Um, I follow the sort of similar stories. Many breweries is a bit of an obsessed or a very obsessed home brewer who uh, started making too much beer for friends and family to drink. And being Scottish, whiskey's in our blood. So we're we're used to drinking a lot. And eventually was dumping batches because I wanted to make a next batch. Um, drove the sort of decision to go to start to sell beer commercially, which started from my kitchen, eventually moved to a cuckoo brewing situation. And then we've now found our home in, in Portobello, a wee seaside town just outside of Edinburgh. Um, yeah. We decided to specialise in uh, what was sour beer at the time. We hadn't coined the modern sour beer uh, term just yet at that point. Uh, mainly down to the fact that we felt that in the UK that that style of sour beer wasn't really represented or the sour beers that I wanted to drink weren't represented in in any great fashion so uh, we've obviously got great access to uh, all of your your, your Belgian products uh, German uh, German beer but the sort of heavily fruited really wacky out there American stuff that I was you know brewing at home and trying to emulate uh, as a home brewer you just didn't get it commercially. So I uh, started making it at home and then decided to have a go at making it on a bigger scale. Awesome. Um, so I love your beer. I personally have had a number of them. Um, people think, I think a lot of people think of, of fruited beers as, as necessarily sour uh, and, and very dry, but yours are different. So can you kind of describe the ethos of Vault City? beer of course yeah of course so uh approachability um is front and center um for, for us in, in every beer so we want to uh make sure that our beers showcase the exceptional ingredients that we work with you know we we're blessed in scotland to have access to amazing soft fruits a lot of our fruit comes from sort of 10 miles up the road um oh. uh, it's you know a really nice sort of access to, to really really fresh fruit um the a lot of sours can be sort of bracingly tart, really acidic, enamel stripping. What we wanted to do was to almost 
soften that a little bit by balancing out with uh, quite a sort of soft body um you know make sure it's got a really great mouthfeel make sure that we're adding sort of layers of creaminess to the beer so um so that you, you know you don't have one sip and you know joe average beer uh, drinker who's maybe starting their craft beer journey immediately goes oh okay so i don't like sours um <laughs> saying you don't like sours is, is the same as saying you know you don't like a an ipa after trying a you know triple ipa that's been oxidized in the can for six months uh, in the boot of your car so um it was all about trying to make sure that we are showcasing the greatest ingredients that we can and making sure that um, it's it's got a, a really good level of approachability whilst still maintaining uh, complexity. And so um, one of the things that uh, you told me when we met that kind of blew me away is is how much residual sugar you have in your beers and like your finishing gravity. Yeah. I think um, that was just at the time of um, when we released Centre Skies, which was a collaboration with our good friends at Neon Raptor. Um, the finishing gravity of that was 10.95. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, if you ferment a beer at 10.95 and then go all the way down to close to zero, you're you're getting a big beer. Uh, we finished at 10.95. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we even finished at 10.95, started somewhere close to 1,200. Um it was a really, really big beer and not one I'm keen to make again. It just caused dispense issues uh, upon dispense issues. But it was a really fun, interesting project to take off. Um, tasted great. It, it had it a was... peanut, peanut butter, strawberry. Oh. Uh, yeah, it was just a, it was a crazy beer. It caused dispense issues because of the fruit or, or, or what reason? Just the viscosity of it. It was just so oh. thick and not thick in a way that like fruit adds thickness. Like because you add fruit to beer and... It, although it is like smoothie thick, there's a difference between smoothie thick and almost like treacle thick. Um, you know, it was like a syrup. Um, it, it was pushing. Yeah, you you were trying to push honey up a line. Uh, okay. It was. I, I said I talked a lot about balance and approachability. That was that was not balanced. And if you just gave that someone blind, they'd ask you what the hell it was. So uh, that's <laughs> that's one of the more out there ones. Um. Em, I've been dominating the questions uh, as usual. So that's fine. No, because you're such a nerd. It's totally <laughs> fine. Uh, this is your wheelhouse, man. Um, I'm on your website right now, actually, because I have never had any of your beers. I unfortunately didn't drink them when I was in Scotland uh, visiting. But it looks like you brew a lot with like pastry. So I see donuts. I see marshmallow. I see cheesecake. How does that yep. work? with uh fruit like and how do you use those ingredients so um with fruit it's we would follow a fairly standard pattern of how we make beer so the the base beer itself fermented by our house culture we then add fruit in as a secondary and then usually the other ingredients come in as tertiary um the the sort of cheesecake and the peanut butter all these things on the homebrew scale it's fine to use the the actual physical ingredients and uh, one thing that we're quite open about and is maybe a kind of a badly kept secret in the beer industry is that, you know, flavorings are are a reality of trying to get to these flavor profiles. So, yeah, for, for things like cheesecake, it is a, it is a cheesecake natural flavoring for uh, that, that we put in our beer. Um, uh, it's funny when we talk to other brewers about it and they're asking, how did you get this? And it's like, oh, we use this product from that place. And they're like, all right, well, we, we use flavorings, too. Like, yeah, we know we don't. You don't actually put uh, double peanut butter, Hershey's chocolate like that. Doesn't actually go in the beer. We know that you you make 
5,000 litres of the stuff. It's not possible. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, it, but, I mean, it's all about making sure you get the absolute quality ingredients that, you know, it, it does what it says it does. We balance it out with um, other projects that we do. So sometimes we do farm-to-fermenter beers where we go up to the farm uh, sort of, you know, 10 miles north and we get fruit picked, fruit processed and into the beer within a couple of hours from it actually leaving the field. Um, so we do like to remain authentic here and there, but uh, there is nothing authentic about a cheesecake beer. Let's let's be <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. You know, really, you should be not only using real cheesecake, but you should be baking that cheesecake yourself. No, hundred uh, <laughs> percent. Um, we've uh, we've done we've done stuff in the past where it is adding silly amounts of stuff to beers, and um, it does get a crazy. But the majority of pastry um, products, like a cheesecake, like the majority of what you get in a cheesecake. I mean, number one, it's it's cream cheese, and nobody really wants that in their beer. Um, but you're a lot of things like maple syrup it, it, it ferments out to nothing you know there, there isn't there's so much sugar in maple syrup that the actual maple flavor is actually quite soft once you've like you know you've you've really sort of vigorously fermented away those simple sugars so it's uh it's, it's a bit tough to get right um how much fruit do you use in a typical beer because i really get the sense that it's a lot yeah so we've just done our it's our fifth birthday this month so we've got five beers coming out all of which are pretty crazy the craziest of the law i think is the uh, 999 grams a liter uh, which we've only done three of and that is the legal maximum of fruit that you can use in a beer um oh. and it's yeah it's just it's come out like an absolute uh milkshake it just you know you're, you're better off throwing out the glass it was poured into rather than trying to clean it um, 999 grams per liter is that what you yeah, said? So nine, oh my god! Yeah, ninety-nine. <laughs> so it's just insane amounts of fruit. Um, it's you know it is it's not something that we make a habit of brewing. It's incredibly expensive to make. The price point we have to keep down at an acceptable level. Nobody wants to pay sort of twenty-five pound a can for a can of beer. If we sort of went with margins that our accountant would be happy with, um, so we we do sell it at a bit of a loss, but. Um, it's those kind of crazy beers that we still want to make uh, whilst, you know, we've got our core range. So our core range beers might be down somewhere, maybe towards 150 grams a liter, um, which is still a lot of fruit. Don't get me yeah, wrong. Yeah, but... you say down to. <laughs> still a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we're, um, you know, the, we're maybe a little bit further behind in the craft beer journey over in, in the UK uh, compared to uh, Canada, US and all that. So we've we've been one of the first... Um, we've been one of the first people to have sour beers on the shelf in, in supermarkets in the UK. Um, and even then it's still like 150 grams a liter of, of mango in our, in our flagship beer, triple fruit mango. So um, it's, it's a lot of fruit. We have a, a very big fruit bill every month. You mentioned you're getting fruit from 10 miles up the road. What kind of things are grown up there? Like, what are you getting? Cause I, the climate of Scotland, I don't immediately think, Fresh fruit in Scotland, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, the mangoes aren't from here. No, but, you know, oh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> they, they come from a little bit further afield. Um, but, you know, you've got amazing soft fruit. There are raspberries, strawberries. Like, they just, they, they, they taste amazing. Uh, you've got some more sort of obscure fruits, like your tea berries, your, um, your honey berries. We've got really lovely gooseberries. Um, oh. A lot of a lot of soft fruit is is uh, is produced in Scotland. Oh, 
I did not, I did not know that. N neither did I. Uh, <laughs> uh, a honeyberry, is that, is that also called a cloudberry? I think it is. I think yeah, you're okay. right. Um, it's a kind of a, it's a cousin of the, the blueberry and it looks slightly phallic. It, it does. Oh. I am Googling it right now. And this is, yeah, it's like a long, it's like a long blueberry. That's what it looks like. Oh. Yeah. We, uh, we unfortunately put the, we put a picture of one out on our Instagram and encouraged our fans to name the beer that we're going to use this in. And I don't think oh, I can no. share 90% of the suggestions. I see. <laughs> um, Nor if you uh, want to drink it, it'll be that, but anyway. Okay. You, uh, you mentioned uh, briefly uh, a house culture. Can you describe a bit of that? And do you think it is special in terms of working with fruit as opposed to, you know, non-fruited beers? Yeah, absolutely. So all of our beers are mixed fermentation, so we don't kettle sour. It's all fermented uh, using our house culture, which is two strains of Saccharomyces and five strains of Lactobacillus. Oh. Um, it was uh, originally traded in the post with a home brewer from Lithuania. Um, oh. <laughs> it's a mixture of wild yeast, farmhouse yeast. It's a, it's a real sort of melting pot of different bits and pieces. Um, so it all gets fermented as one. So a uh, co-pitch of lacto and sac. Um, we keep it all on site. So it's all sort of growing up uh, almost like a Solera in a uh, propagation tank. Um, and it just gives incredible, um, it, it just throws out loads of beautiful kind of peachy apricot, pear. Um, we've never actually done a beer, which is just our straight, base beer before but uh if you're ever lucky enough to come on come to the brewery and try some of it it's uh like even you know we ferment hot we ferment sort of close to 40 degrees celsius oh um, wow oh wow yeah yeah that's so, that's kvik hot that's yeah so same similar families just not not the right not the right region um it's uh yeah it's a it's a really special house culture and something that we're you know i i think that is just the secret sauce for for Paul City is that is that fermentation and oh, really? because we're because we only really use that house culture a lot of breweries would shy away from well they wouldn't they wouldn't want it anywhere near their 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 brew house basically it's wild yeast uh, but because we're using only that um for 99% of the beers you know we don't have infection worries so that's how we're able to to sort of go down this road of you know not kettle souring and doing things with a a co-pitch fermentation um, it's funny whenever we do like an imperial stout and we're bringing, you know, like a standard Cali ale yeast into the brew house, we actually treat it like, you know, as bad as having like a Britannomyces infection in the in the brewery, because we don't want this commercially pitched yeast to infect the rest of our wild culture. It's, it's backwards how, thinking. How the heck did you connect with a home brewer in Lithuania? Like, how did that even happen? And how did you discover like that's the flavor you wanted to use? That's bonkers to me. It so right back, very cool. It right back, yeah, no, it was right back at the start of the, the, when when Vault City started. Um, it was uh, just from from home brewing days. Um, so that was you know going through the internet and being on homebrew sites and uh, came up with the you know wanted to search out this particular yeast and uh, we're glad we did. Um. You know, you mentioned you got your start in in home brewing. Uh, you mentioned that you ferment at forty degrees, which still blows my mind. That's um, like, yeah. 
What is it? For our Fahrenheit friends, oh, hold on. I just didn't know. Uh, you are uh, 95. So you're like Cezanne DuPont level, essentially. It's, yeah, 104. Oh, 104. 104. That's a bad fever. <laughs> it's a very cold body. <laughs> um, That's and you crazy. Also, you also told me that you ferment under pressure. So how yeah. did you uh, figure out to do this? How did you know it would make better beer or accomplish the the mouthfeel and the flavor that you were talking about earlier? Like, how how does this happen? <laughs> I guess I'd love to tell you it was some scientific process, but um, the the thought process initially was: I walk into the brewery in the morning and it smells really good, but I don't want my brewery to smell good. I want my beer to smell good. Every single bit of aroma that's gotten out of that ferment fermentation vessel is no longer in, in the beer and the consumer is uh -huh. not getting it. So um, it was very much just uh, when well, we do our primary fermentation with the house culture, that then goes to about sort of five points away from terminal. And then we add the fruit in on secondary. So we, we do the, the first fermentation open. Um, and then oh. once we have the fruit, we then close it in for a secondary fermentation under pressure. Uh, it goes up to about two bar, which, um, you know, it's hard to keep yeast happy at that because, You've got yeah. a couple of factors there where there's now alcohol in the environment, there's acidity, there's pressure. Like basically, if you wanted to kill your yeast, you, you follow all these steps. Uh, so it sometimes can be a little bit tough to get the beer to go all the way. But um, we've you know worked with this house culture long enough now to understand it um, as much as we can. Um, but yeah, secondary is always under, under pressure. And um, sort of two things sort of came out immediately. The first was um, the the aroma just popped like opening up that can of beer was like, you know, smelling the fermenter when it was going full whack at, at um, you know, secondary fermentation. So that was like sort of ticking the box number one, but the, the interesting one I found was the, the kind of quality and formation of the head and the carbonation itself just seemed to be a lot smoother, a lot gentler like rather than injecting CO2 mm. in at the end to reach your desired carbonation levels, which we do sometimes need to do to top it up, um, naturally carbonating did seem to add an extra element of you know smoothness to the beer, which um, I have never once looked into. I ticked the box and went, that's better. I wonder why that is. And then you move on with your day. So yeah, it seems yeah. to be, seems to be there, seems to, seems to add a creaminess. Yeah. Hmm. Um. Do you have a sense of how many different fruits you've worked with? <laughs> That's a good question. I've not asked that before. Uh, I, I'd like to say maybe about 50. Oof. Something oh, wow. About that. We've really gone for some like obscure fruits and stuff that people haven't heard of and, you know, really sort of searching for stuff that's new and interesting. Um, I think the combinations of fruit is the real interesting stuff. Like, Ah. You know, mango by itself is amazing. Passion fruit by itself is amazing, but you combine those two, and it's just like the perfect sour beer for me is mango and passion fruit. Uh, I can drink that all day long, but um, yeah, no, we've, we've used a lot of fruit in our in our time. Is the mango passion fruit your favorite combo? Like, is that the favorite fruit you brew with, or is there something else that you got that you brew with that you're like, oh yeah? I mean, passion <laughs> fruit by itself is absolutely my favorite. It's so I, good. I, I went, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a shame how uh, expensive it's gotten recently, but um, yeah, that's just stuff. You know, we we're reliant on good crops every year, and 
if there's a bad crop, then the fruit's more expensive, mm. um, which is becoming more and more of a problem, obviously. Um, I like coconut. A lot of people hate coconut, but mango, passion fruit, coconut, you know, you've got a, you've got a sort of like pina colada thing going. It's beautiful. Yeah, you're on Question, the beach, how do you use coconut in your sours? Yeah, okay. sure. So we, we love using coconut. I've tried various things. The first thing we did was coconut cream. I added like 20 liters to maybe 2000 liters of beer. Couldn't taste coconut. Added more, <laughs> added more, added more. And then we ended up getting to like 200 kilograms of coconut uh, cream in 2000 liters of beer. And eventually there was a lot of coconut in the beer. But what had happened was the um, the coconut cream itself didn't quite mix with the beer. Bear in mind, like, you know, I've, I've not got a brewing background. I'm just a jumped up home brewer. So like a lot of brewers will probably listen to this and just like cringe at, at, at those numbers. But eventually it mixed in the tank. But then when we bottled it, the coconut, um, the coconut cream separated and formed a plug at the top of the bottle. Oh. <laughs> so we had like 2000 liters of this, like really delicious. It was a stout, really delicious stout that we really wanted people to try. So we had to release a disclaimer or a warning with the beer to say that you had to shake it up before before pouring. And it wasn't like, you know, invert this beer to get it, you know, to, to get like a smoothie sour going. It was like vigorously shake this beer for a minute and then leave it for two minutes and then carefully open it. Um that did taste like coconut, but it didn't quite get the, you know, we, we didn't we didn't want to be making people, you know, give them tennis elbow from shaking their beer up um so we have done a various we've done various things we've now settled on uh toasted coconut flakes um we've got a new bar that opened up last year in just down the road from the brewery we've got a big uh smoker in there so big fan of smoked meats and uh our commercial smoker there sometimes gets loaded up with um coconut flakes and we toast the flakes and then walk them up the road and stick them in the beer hmm. uh that can, you know, maple wood smoked coconut flakes in a beer. That's that's where it's at. Damn, nice. Uh, Steve, you mentioned that passion fruit is probably your favorite fruit in, to use in beer. And uh, as M mentioned, I'm uber nerdy. So I wanted to ask if you've ever thought of um, making the same beer, but with different varieties of passion fruit, and then seeing if you could showcase the, actually taste the different types of passion fruit. In a beer. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've done it with mango. Uh, oh. So uh, our sort of biggest selling beer is our triple fruit mango. Um, we tried out three different varieties of mango and a sort of back to back, and uh, we settled on Alfonso mango, uh, which has got a really cool name to boot. Um, so yeah, we, we've done stuff like that in the past. Um, I'd like to do it with more things. Like you know, there's loads of varieties of strawberries. Um, we know farmers who are growing certain varietals that we want to try out it's just uh it's one of these things that we're now at the scale without a pilot kit where uh in order to do a back-to-back -back test we're having to brew like four thousand liters so um it becomes a little bit of an expensive test um <laughs> we uh we currently operate out of a five thousand square foot warehouse um which is absolutely tiny for our needs now so the, the homebrew kit got uh, taken out and more tanks got put in so um, but yeah, no, it's interesting to see what different varieties of fruit can add to the add to the party, and even like you know the fruit coming in at different times of uh, harvest and early season raspberries and late season raspberries. The differences that you see there are are pretty pretty stark. Um, so it's 
it's challenging to work with when we're trying to create a product that's uh, consistent across the year. But right. if we get a lot of rain towards the end of season, then it'll change the it'll change the berry. Um, so, yeah, oh. it's uh, it's interesting. That is interesting. I love this stuff. Um, when we chatted a couple of years ago, uh, you were looking to buy a centrifuge, but you told me it was not a normal beer centrifuge. It was a special kind of French centrifuge. And then the one thing that kind of blew my mind at the time was you told me how expensive it was going to be. But your 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 gains from using it were going to be so great that it was going to pay itself in some ridiculous short amount of time. Could you tell 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 me about that again? Well, do you want the horror story? Um, sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. Guess uh, guess when that centrifuge is being uh, commissioned, and you can uh, tell by oh. the way I said that is when it is going to be commissioned. <laughs> uh, later today, tomorrow. <laughs> next week uh, oh, okay. so been a bit of a, a bit of a process with that and okay. that is unfortunately uh part and parcel of sort of being uh of having equipment that isn't quite um you know it just it doesn't doesn't appear in breweries of our size it's right. in the big boy breweries but uh you know nobody below the size of like your your big ab imbev style breweries have these um, I think Treehouse and Trillium might have one in the States, but um, we were the first to order one in the UK. Um, okay. But it's a decanter centrifuge. So um, the typical uses for decanter centrifuges are, uh, <laughs> well, when I was talking to the, the, the German team that were designing it, uh, trying to explain why it wasn't a disc stack centrifuge, which is used for, you know, polishing and uh, removing of small hot matter from from beer so something most breweries would most sizable breweries would have right um, not quite that i want to remove a lot of solid matter like i want to remove all this fruit pulp but keep the, the, the juice and uh, the, the guy from germany says we have this machine but we use it for for z baby food um <laughs> i was like yes baby food that's what we make like think of baby food like you know we want to make we want to make baby food with alcohol in it. That's that's the that's that's the, the consistency. <laughs> so um it's a decanter centrifuge, ran as about a quarter of a million pounds. Um the um the losses that we've seen in beers, like we're typically struggling to get above eighty percent yield on a beer. So losing twenty percent of each tank to, you know, just fruit junk. Uh loads of not like yeast rubbish that you don't want at the right at the bottom of the tank but the the fruit puree like the fruit matter the fibrous stuff like that's sat in the tank and you know it tastes nice as a smoothie but if you're trying to make a, a non-smoothie beer um you, you don't want to put that in a can so that process is that and should take our losses from uh 20 down to below five um, okay. so it's a substantial increase or a substantial decrease um and you know it'll allow us to sort of shoulder some of the other price increases that we've seen come our way and uh not have to increase prices due to the price of fruit going up and grain and electricity and all all the stuff that everyone's very well aware of right the the issue has become more acute with with price increases i guess yeah um, no definitely and you know it's fruit's a big one and um you know Brexit hasn't helped us an awful lot, I'll tell you that. So, um, yeah, getting stuff into the country can be a bit of a challenge. 
And so I think you told me, even though it's a quarter million pounds, you will pay off that that centrifuge uh, through recovered beer in like six months. Yeah, it's it's, it's a really quick payback yeah. period. Um, yeah. Just because we're currently throwing away, you know, if we're my, if we're making thirty batches of beer in a month and we're throwing away fifteen uh, percent of that, then you know you're the maths is quite quick. Um, you're getting product for free essentially. So um, yeah, and it, it also improves um it improves the the quality of it as well. If you think about the the really sort of like the stuff that's at the bottom of the fermenter, the stuff that's like the really heavy fruit matter, like that's got a lot of flavor into it. So if you process that, you're getting a really sort of concentrated fruit flavor in there. So the, the, the flavor in theory should, should improve. We're still yet to trial it out, but yeah, flavor, uh, you know, the, the beers are still going to be as high quality as they are. They should be better. Yeah. Awesome. Hmm. Very I cool. think, uh, M and I, we're going to book flights. Hey, you don't have to. Actually, we were thinking about going. My husband and I are thinking about going to Scotland next year for. A few, we have a very good friend in Glasgow, so nice. we were going to go visit. And I, you know, twist my arm to go to Scotland. It's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful country. So, yeah, um, we've got yes. a lot of different things to experience, and it's uh, you know, once you go north, uh, going out for three days next month, just taking the motorbike me and my wife are going to go out and do a bit of island hopping um it's amazing to be able to do three nights away and see so much of a country it's it's great the weather's rubbish a lot of the time but that's what it is. <laughs> a lot of rainbows that was the that's my family my family vacations motto after we went was the Sauter family vacation another fucking rainbow because it was just <laughs> like every corner i was like oh another fucking rainbow and it was gorgeous you know it was, it was amazing <laughs> And it's if you go to Svelte you... City, you can taste the rainbow. You can drink the rainbow. There we go. That's a marketing degree right there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Do you remember the, the YouTube, the video that came out a while ago? It was one of the first like, sort of like viral videos. It was the double rainbow guy. Oh, yeah. I remember, yeah. I remember watching that, being younger, being like, see a double rainbow every month. What's this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is is he is he laughing at it because it's not a triple rainbow? Like I don't get. Yeah. We don't really have it. It's not. Yeah, it was just a normal like Tuesday to see like fifty rainbows when we were in. We were there in October of twenty nineteen, and yeah, it was just like rainbow after rainbow after rainbow. We don't, you know, unless you live in like Hawaii or other rainy, maybe Alaska if it's sunnier, like and rainy during the rain. Like we don't, you know, I don't see a rainbow every day here in New England. Um, Send your phone. I'm looking for one now, but we're we're all out. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, am I am out of questions? Do you have uh, any any more questions? I am also out of questions, but I am wanting to. Uh, Don, we're going to Scotland to try these beers. Yeah, that sounds good. You don't have to twist my arm. No, yeah. Um, Steve, can you please tell us your social media handles, etc., cetera, uh, where people can follow what you're doing? Uh, see these amazing beers and then be envious that they you know can't taste them because they live in America or Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. We're we're all over Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. What's the new one called? Threads. Threads. That's the one. I downloaded it, looked at it, and went, no, I actually don't like social media. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're all over everything is Vault City Brewing. Um at Vault City Brewing. Um so give us a follow and um yeah, like we'll um 
our diaries are packing up with uh, loads of international festivals. So it'd be great to get across, um, get get across to Canada, get across the US. And uh, the thing is, you guys make such good sour beer over there that we'd just be one of many. So um, yeah, it's great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Take care, guys. Cheers. 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 So, Em, what's the favorite thing you learned about fruit in beer? Oh, my gosh. There's so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty crazy how how much fruit you really need to use. Yes. And then I also really enjoyed where the sourcing was from 10 miles up the road in your backyard to what? Turkey and all over the world with Urban Artifact. Like, it's just, it was really, it's very unique how breweries take different approaches to sourcing products to make their beers. It's kind of a chef's approach, I guess, Mm. because if you talk to uh, chefs, they'll tell you that their heart, their hardest job is sourcing ingredients. If you have great ingredients, you make great food. So I guess the same applies to beer. Yeah, absolutely. And it also made me very thirsty and it made me want to try some fruit beers, especially some really unique fruit beers, especially the two people we talked to are making some beers that sound wonderful and yeah. unique and very 2023. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool stuff. Love it. Love it. Well, uh, please visit allaboutbeer.com and follow us on social media at allaboutbeer. And if you're feeling generous, please visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to support this show and others. If you have questions for the experts, please email us at podcast at allaboutbeer.com. That's also the email for feedback, suggestions, if you have a show idea or to inquire about supporting this show through advertising. Speaking of advertising, here's a word from our sponsors. Looking for an easy hop sourcing experience? Yakima Valley Hops offers the finest quality hops from right here in our valley and premium growing regions around the world. Get the hops you need when you need them with ultra-fast shipping and awesome customer service. With a full line of liquid hop products and all your favorite varieties, no contracts are needed to brew with the best. Shop now at yakimavalleyhops.com. That's Y-A-K-I-M-A, valleyhops.com. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. Estrella Galicia is an independent family-owned brewery in Northwest Spain, founded in 1906. Estrella Galicia Cerveza Especial is a world-class lager, brewed using the finest Spanish malts, locally cultivated Galician hops, and the best brewing practices made out of the state-of-the-art facility in Acruña. Recognized around the world for quality and exceptional character, Estrella Galicia is a beer like no other. To learn more about Estrella Galicia, follow them at Estrella Galicia USA on Instagram. M, you know how uh, at the end, we always ask people to review the podcast? Of course. I'm not going to do that this week. Wait, what? Uh, No, this week, I'm going to ask our listeners to forward this podcast to just one person. Only one? Only one. And when they do it, please tag us on social media so we can personally thank them for listening to the show. And thank you for listening to the show. And speaking of social media, M, how can you, how can people find you? I am at Pints and Panels across all social media, and my website is pintsandpanels.com. How about you, Don? Uh, I am at the Dawn of Beer on Twitter, Instagram, and Threads, and people can drop me an email uh, at dawn at 
thedawnofbeer.com. This show is produced by Olive Oat Beer. Visit oliveoatbeer.com for articles, notes on this show and others, and to connect via the newsletter and social media. Cheers. Cheers. Keep drinking fruity.